My name is Eduardo Zanata. I'm Vice President of Operations at the Vita and an MBA graduate of the Harvard Business School. The Latter-day Saint MBA Society was founded by a group of MBA students and alumni who are members of the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints, with the goal of bringing together a community committed to navigating the business world with our faith at the center of our lives. In this podcast, you'll hear interviews with Latter-day Saint thought leaders that we hope will inspire you both in your professional and spiritual life. For more information about the Latter-day Saint MBA Society, visit latterdaysaintmba.com. And now I'll pass it over to Kurt Frankham, who will host this week's interview. Hello and welcome back to another episode of the Latter-day Saint MBA podcast. Today, uh, we're welcoming, I'm trying to think if we've ever had a college president on the podcast at this point, but if not, uh, Astrid Tuminez, uh, welcome to the, the to the podcast. Thank you. I'm happy and, to be here. Yeah, and uh, you talked about uh, Davis Smith was the one that maybe extended the invitation and you uh, were kind enough to to accept it. So I'm, uh, we're excited to hear your story and uh, learn about uh, your your career and now what uh, the good things happening at uh, Utah Valley University. And I, and I need to, I guess, state off the bat that I'm a graduate of, back then it was Utah UVSC? Valley State College, UVSC. Wow. So I got a two-year degree from there before I moved on with my studies. So I'm a, I, I've got my little, uh, uh, part of my heart is attached to being a Wolverine. So That is awesome. That endears you to me already right oh, away. Good. <laughs> good. And um, maybe just let's let's start there with uh, Utah Valley University. Like what, uh, what's the status of, of the university? What's going on? What's, what has you excited? Yes, UVU is an amazing place. Uh, I've been president for four years now. I had my fourth year anniversary in September. And I think my initial hunch about the place have, uh, you know, has been correct all along that this is such a 21st century higher education institution fit for the 21st century, meaning it's very inclusive. Um, we have 40, over 43,000 students enrolled this fall. That includes about 13,000 high school students who are being exposed to college through concurrent enrollment. And, uh, you know, it is an integrated community college and teaching university. So it's wonderful where we still offer the the wide range of career and technical education uh, that, uh, that would be true of a community college while uh, having the rigor of a four-year teaching institution. We also offer 14 master's degrees now. So it's very exciting, everything from certificates to master's degrees, open admissions, so we admit everybody. And the, the classrooms that you, you are complicated. You've got students with uh, 1.6 GPAs in high school and those with 4.0s. And then uh, for ACTs and SATs, the score ranges are the same. It's really all across the distribution. And so it makes teaching really, really critical. But the fundamental premise is that UVU believes in every human potential, that we don't write anyone off, whether they're an 18-year-old freshman or a 42-year-old freshman or a 77-year-old returning student, anyone who wants to improve themselves and create a better pathway forward uh, intellectually, operationally, professionally, all of the choices and support are there for them at UVU. Nice. That's awesome. And I know uh, you even have an MBA program there. Is that, that correct? Yes, we do. We have an MBA program. Our Woodbury School of Business is the largest in the state. And we've just announced a new dean, uh, Professor oh, cool. Bob Allen, who comes to us from the Eccles School of Business at University of Utah. And he will start on January 1st. Awesome. Well, that's exciting. And what uh, what sort of shifts or um, adjustments have happened now that you know we're past the the sort of the pandemic, at least that the heaviness of the pandemic? Uh, what what adjustments came out of that? Yeah. Well, we call it endemic now. Um, you know, it's endemic. Uh, COVID nineteen right. is here to stay. Uh, what are the adjustments? I think first of all, there were wonderful silver linings to that particular storm cloud of two years. I think uh, UBU improved in agility and proved its agility. We had to shift uh, over 6,000 sections online within about 10 days. We did it. We had our best graduation uh, numbers in 2020, 2021, and 2022. 
from 6,420 in 2020 to 8,729 in 2021 and over 11,000 in 2022. Um, you know, we welcome the help from the federal government. It helped our students pay rent and tuition when many of them lost their jobs. 82% of our students work. So I think the the pandemic and the, the technological um, adjustments, especially, I think were long needed. They happen much faster. And I applaud our faculty for their agility as well, where the majority of our tenured and tenure track faculty are now certified to teach online. And, and of course, the challenge today is not just to passively put your courses online, but mm. to make online and virtual as engaging as anything in person. And that really means knowing how to use technology. I came from a tech company before becoming a university president, and the idea of digital transformation has been and remains very important to my tenure at UVU. Um, what else did we learn? I think exceptional care, our fundamental value at UVU is so critical. Uh, during COVID, we asked our students in a survey to name a faculty or staff member who helped them uh, finish. And we got, I don't know, close to a thousand maybe of these names. And we sent everybody a thank you letter and a small gift certificate to the campus store. And it's not about these material things, but it's about seeing seeing what's going on, that what gets things done is people. You know, all your strategy and goals, they could be very, uh, they could be soaring. But at the end of the day, I think uh, people really need to see one another and care for one another in the pandemic. Again, mm. that was the sil one of the silver, silver linings of it. Yeah, wow. And well, good, maybe one more thing, so Wolverine quality. Yeah. You know, when I came to UVU, I had to study what the Wolverine was as a creature <laughs> and, and I loved learning that it took on prey bigger than itself. It can travel hundreds of miles in a day. Um, it's such a powerful animal. And so I, I just love that, that, the grit and perseverance. And that's so appropriate for UVU because many of our students do not represent uh, privileged layers of society. Uh, many are, are qualified for Pell Grants. I think that's a wonderful thing, you know, if you're having yeah. a, a difficult life, you're also the hungriest and uh, your, your, your uh, underdog mentality can serve you in that you want to work harder and you want to try harder and, and never give up. Yeah. And I know that uh, this may be a good transition to your own uh, journey and, and, and coming from humble circumstances yourself. I've had the opportunity to hear your, your inspiring story many times as you've spoken at uh, different events and whatnot, but maybe for those that haven't heard it, uh, Maybe tell us your early background and that, that background that you come from. Yes, yeah, so I was born in a farming village in the Philippines. I was um, child number six, and then um, there was later child number seven. My mother moved my family when I was two years old to the slums of the city of Iloilo in the Philippines because she believed that we would have better education opportunities. And I have told this story many times. And, and actually, one of the points from it is that, you know, what you see as perhaps the hardest thing in your life is also the biggest blessing of your life. So mm -hmm. I grew up with six other siblings in a, in a hut made of bamboo and nipa grass, uh, literally on stilts in the sea. And there was high tide and low tide. And my father, uh, his job was as a tax collector in the wet market. And he earned the equivalent of less than $50 a month. And so um, I never had electricity or running water, uh, no books, no radio, no television, no toys. And, and you know, and, and then that's just the what I didn't have. What I did have was like, you know, disease and worms and, mm. and exposure to violence at a, at a young age. But I also had a, a great family and and, uh, you know, a uh, very strong faith, first as a Catholic, and then later as a Latter-day Saint, and then great friends, in, in a way, in the, in the slums, the neighbors were very helpful to each other, uh, not always, but generally, and there was a lot of, of laughter, a lot of sharing of, of very meager material, material things, but uh, I like to say that poor people have to be truly smart, because if they're not smart, they die. And so it is, it, it is that start. So, so that's my upbringing. And then my education came from a Catholic convent school called the Colegio del Sagrado Corazón de Jesús, which was a, 
convent uh, school run by Daughters of Charity. That's the order of the nuns that ran it. Very expensive school, very high quality education. And we got to go because because the nuns found my family during one of their service uh, forays in the slums and then uh, let us go to school for free. So that was j- just an unbelievable um blessing or stroke of luck or the universe you know aligning and and um uh yeah basically i think that was the pivot point for changing my life yeah yeah and then uh, how old were you when your family found the the church of jesus christ latter-day saints um we didn't find it it found us i i I was (laughs) i think i was 10 and um you know, some missionaries came uh, tracting in, in the slums. And the first set, actually, one of them fell into the filthy water and they ne- never came back, but left our name in the drawer of the house where they lived, which is also where the church met. And um, yeah, so that that was how old I was. Nice. And was the, was your family like sort of had an open heart to other uh other faith traditions or whatnot, or were you pretty staunch Catholic background? We, we were we were truly staunch uh, Catholics. In fact, uh, my older sister Elna and I were the second to last to join the church, and then my father was last. It was my two older sisters who joined first, so mm. it was sort of a trickle kind of um, of conversion, and and in part because. Uh, I think very important because we were very staunch Catholics. And in fact, I was very unhappy when my older sisters converted because I thought, who's going to go with me to mass on Saturdays? Who's going to, you know, I went to confession every week. I never missed mass. I pray the rosary all the time. And I felt very loyal as well to the nuns. So, yeah, so it was, it, it was not a quick conversion and, um, you know, I've said to others before, yeah, I used to drink beer as a child, so <laughs> I didn't want to give that up. And um, I, I don't know what those missionaries from Utah thought of this strange, <laughs> yeah. you know, set of uh, six girls and one boy. And uh, yeah, so it, it was it, it was a slow process, but it eventually happened. Yeah. And do you feel like, I mean, obviously the, the Catholic religion and tradition has teaches great values and, and hard work and all these things. Uh, do, do you feel like, you know, growing up into the Latter-day Saint uh, tr- faith tradition that it added something to your future career path? Absolutely. I, th- I think both are very critical to my career path. And, and, you know, I simply call it my spiritual foundation uh, mm-hmm. on what do I rest Uh, I rest on this faith that the nuns taught me and then my LDS faith taught me. And they kind of have different emphases. Uh, Mm -hmm. The Catholic Church, it was very much, it was very fear-driven. And and LDS faith is also fear-driven in many ways. But um, Catholicism, you know, as a young child where, uh, again, that idea that God is watching you all the time. Uh, There's the concept of good and evil and then I had a Catholic nun uh, teacher who who gave me a very powerful message um, early on where she said to me, you know, religion is really about seeing God in every person. And I found that a kind of a powerful counterpoint to just being uh, fear-driven and thinking of God as this white man in the sky who's just judging you all the time and, you know, is going to send you to hell if you don't. <laughs> If you're yeah. a little too rowdy, uh, I think my LDS faith opened the the very empowering concept to me of godhood. And mm. even as a child, that was very powerful for me. That probably was the most powerful aspect of it all, where I, um, you know, when I was young, I used to ask the nuns, uh, why was I born a human? Why couldn't I be a stone or a tree? And, and, and then um, kind of learning... Um, the plan of salvation in the LDS faith was was so uh, fascinating and compelling to me as a child, and and the thought that, that's really truly radical, you know, that you can be like yeah. God. I mean, you tell that to a kid in the slum. I mean, that's that's pretty crazy. Uh, yeah. That is kind of crazy stuff. But but then it makes the uh, it makes all the obstacles in your life just kind of fall apart because you know you're you're believing that. Um, I am of divine worth. Hey, there's nothing better than that. And so you just go with that and then you 
you know, you, you, you live a life of discipline and hard work and, and, uh, and fear too. You know, there's, as I said, there's also a lot of fear in LDS uh, theology and maybe a lot, a lot of shame as well if you don't do uh, very well and you're not perfect. And I think all of that in my, in, as an adult, I realize it's just all practice to kind of understand yourself yeah. and your place in the universe. Yeah. You know, uh, for myself growing up in America, you know, I think bef before I turned 10, you're asked a, a, a thousand times, what do you want to be when you grow up? And I don't know, you know, living in the slums and in such poverty, maybe you're just not on that track of mind. Uh, but did you have the sense of what you wanted to be when you grew up as a young girl or maybe even in your teenage years? Um, actually, there were a couple of LDS missionaries who had that conversation with me and, and oh, around wow. the age of 10. And we were... Um, you know, standing on the balcony of my hut and they said, you know, what do you want to be when you grow up? And I remember very, very distinctly my answer as if it was yesterday. I said, I'm going to be Secretary General of the United Nations and I'm going to live in New York City. So, oh, wow. and, and the reason I said that was, you know, as a, ch as a child, ch children pick up random things. And I had picked up new, either Newsweek or Time Magazine at the library and it talked about New York City and there was an article about the United Nations. So I just said that. <laughs> and I actually did both things. I lived in New York City for 14 years and I worked one summer for the United Nations. So, oh, cool. so there you go. I did become, I, I did what I said I would become and I grew up. Wow, that's awesome. It, and then going through, um, you're at that the, the Catholic school, was that that? through your high school years or before you went to college or how, how uh, that through went? my junior year of high school. And in the Philippines, we only have um, six years of elementary school. We don't have middle school then four years of high school. So hmm. through my junior year and because of uh, the conversion to Mormonism, relationships became very strained between us and the Catholic nuns. And rightly so, they felt very betrayed. I don't blame them. Uh, and, and so I had to leave in my senior year and, and I moved to Manila and actually uh, went to school at a, at a Methodist kind of evangelical school my last year of high school in Manila. Nice. And then what was, uh, did you have an idea of what you wanted to do at that point in your life uh, as far as your continuing it? Um, well, I started college at the age of 15 in the Philippines at the University oh, okay. of the wow. Philippines. And, and, you know, it, it was very uh, zigzaggy because I, I, I thought I wanted to be a chemical engineer. And the University of the Philippines, uh, Diliman campus, is one of the top institutions in the country. And I did start out in chemical engineering, but, you know, everybody was faster than I in mathematics and I couldn't stand it. And so I, I changed to pre-med and then I didn't want to dissect a cat. They wanted us to find our own cat. I, I was okay dissecting little animals. They wanted us to find a cat and bring it ourselves. Oh, really? Oh, my goodness. <laughs> and, and I thought, no, I'm not going to do that. So, so that was the end of my pre-med uh, career. And then I uh, met a professor who had lived in Moscow, I think was a committed communist. And he was in his 70s and I followed him around campus and I learned Russian from him and I began to be very interested in the Cold War. And, and that's what eventually led to my majoring in Russian literature and international relations. I, was beca I became deeply fascinated with the Cold War and the possibility of annihilation because the United States and the Soviet Union had thousands of intercontinental uh, ballistic missiles, sea-based, you know, uh, missiles, you know, pointed at one another. And um, and that's if eventually what my first career. I had an 11-year career in Soviet studies and, you know, post-Soviet Russia. And, and so, um, yeah, but I didn't know at the beginning exactly what I wanted to become. Wow. And that's so okay, you... by the way. When you're 15 yeah. or 18, you shouldn't know exactly what you want to become. I always joke that I still don't know what I want to become. <laughs> I am becoming right now and I'm in my fifties and I feel totally okay with that. Yeah. Yeah. That's great advice. Um, so did you uh, become quite fluent in Russian or? I'm fluent in Russian. Yes. 
I, okay. I had great training at Brigham Young University. Um, I was among the first cohort of BYU students to go to the Soviet Union in 1985 and spend uh, eight weeks in Moscow and what was then Leningrad, today known as St. Petersburg. So, um, yeah, my language training at BYU was superb. I still speak Russian uh, fluently today. Oh, cool. And so is there a story behind uh, going from that college in Manila to to BYU or what, what made yes. that transition? So I went to that college for three semesters on a, on a Philippine government scholarship. And uh, I always wanted to go to Utah because in my mind it was Zion, you know, that if I could just <laughs> go to Utah... Uh, I'd be in heaven, basically. <laughs> All is well, and right? <laughs> I was I was seventeen when I applied to BYU. I got in right away with no scholarship because I was coming from a foreign country, and I tried. Get a U.S. visa three times and was turned down three times, and on my fourth. Oh, yeah, yeah. On my third try, actually, I fasted for 48 hours. And they still mm. said no. You know, basically, they said, you're young, you have no assets, you have no land or bank account in the Philippines, you'll never return. You're a flight risk. That's what the consuls told me. Oh. But um, in the fourth try, uh, the reason I got a visa was some of my LDS friends who were Mexican-American, the Gomez family in Manila, they went to one of the consuls and... Um, uh, offered bond for me and and vouched for my character and said, you know, she really needs to get this education at BYU. And so they um, they they helped me. I got a visa and um, went to BYU for three and a half years. Nice. And um, any any notable uh, you know personal transformation or experience there at BYU they haven't mentioned or. Um, it, well, it, it was, you know, coming to, to Utah was, was uh, you know, yeah, it was like Zion, you know, suddenly I had running water all the time, electricity. I lived with my sister for the first semester and her apartment, which was not a very fancy apartment at all. Now, now that I know better, <laughs> I thought it was so fancy because she had carpet and I used to think, wow, my sister has carpet. This is so amazing. And I would do all my homework every day on the floor and uh, everything just was easy for me, so easy because mm. there was food and carpet and showers and, you know, and electricity. And, and so um, uh, it was very easy for me. I mean, there were other, other discoveries, you know, uh, BYU was interesting in that all of the missionaries I thought in the Philippines were so smart because this Eng their English was so good. <laughs> and then I caught up with them at BYU and I thought, what, you can't spell? That's terrible. Um, <laughs> but uh, it was sort of this exposure to America and, and uh, everybody was so tall and I wore high heels all the time, which was probably terrible for my feet, but I just wanted to be tall. And, uh, you know, so it was all the whole uh, you know, where many things were easy. Some things were also really hard. I didn't drive. I didn't have a car. Um, but I was really determined to work hard and succeed. And uh, one day I learned about Lamanite scholarships and I went and asked for one. And they said, you know, you're not Lamanite. And I said, how do you know that? You know, Hagoth and his ships were never heard from. <laughs> That's right. I'm sure, they, I'm sure they went to the Philippines. And it was it was kind of hilarious. Um uh, the administrator, whose name was Lanny Knighting, wonderful gentleman, he just laughed so hard, and and he gave me a Lamanite scholarship, and I still have that letter oh, wow. that that said, you know, here's your Lamanite scholarship to buy some books, <laughs> and so so yeah, it was it was a, a big adventure. Yeah, was it? Uh, when did the idea as far as graduate school come into your mind? Was that always part of the plan? No, I didn't know about graduate school. I didn't know about master's degrees or. Mm -hmm. PhDs that just came because I went to BYU and realized my professors had this degree called a PhD and that you could also get a master's degree. So it was it was just like a natural um, effect of, of doing my bachelor's. And so I applied for master's degrees. I wasn't so sure I really wanted a PhD and, you know, be so scholarly. And so I applied to Yale, Georgetown and Harvard and, and got into all three and Harvard gave me the most money. So I went there. 
Nice. And uh, how would you describe your your couple of years at uh, Harvard? Um, I stayed at Harvard for a long time, six years. Oh, really? My oh, degree okay. was only two years, but I stayed on as a fellow at the Harvard Kennedy School for another four years. Um, Harvard was just uh, another world blown open for me. You know, it's uh, I just thought America was Utah and BYU, like all Americans are, are like BYU Americans. And then so I got to Harvard and I'm like, why are people here not well dressed? You know, what's wrong with them? Why aren't they putting on makeup and curling their hair and putting on good clothes to go to class? So, <laughs> so anyway, so Harvard was very different in, in that sense. And, but, you know, it opened uh, a whole new world of um, uh, excellence and, you know, very ambitious people. I was, I was in fact, very intimidated, felt like I wasn't as well read for sure. Um, but I could outwork them. So, um, so, so that was, that, that was great. I felt like there were a lot of egos also at Harvard, people who, you know, are absolutely full of ego. And I didn't like that part, but what I loved was the commitment to, to outstanding work and discovery mm -hmm. and scholarship and excellence in everything, in everything. And so I think my exposure there to all of these, you know, world-class names in, and people who visited, not just the people at Harvard, but people who visited, I, I loved it and, um, uh, and just made me realize there was more in the world that I could aspire to. Yeah. And so at this point is your, and that's where you got the, the master's in, in Soviet studies. Is that right? I did. Yes. And was there a plan, uh, what you hoped to do with that after graduating, or was the uh, the plan always to move on to get a PhD? Uh, well, I wanted to do some good in this world. You know, I was mentored yeah. by Professor Gary Browning at BYU, and this professor to this day is still one of my dearest friends and mentors. And uh, when he was at BYU, he was very active in the anti-nuclear arms race movement. Um, he got some really horrible... Uh, you know, feedback from people around here in Utah, including death threats. And I just didn't understand why wow. someone so Christ-like would be getting that kind of feedback. Um, he, he, he was, in many ways, Gary, uh, you know, uh, uh, was a peace activist and, mm -hmm. and believed that, uh, you know, we should love our Russian or Soviet brothers and sisters. So I was always concerned about what could I do with my degree that was about you know, uh, doing good in the world. I wasn't really necessarily thinking about a PhD. Um, I think these degrees are instruments towards something and yeah. more education opens more doors. And so um, after the after my, my master's, I thought, you know, why not do a PhD as well, really go in depth into the Soviet Union and Russia and try to make an original contribution. Yeah. And, and then how did you end up at MIT for your PhD? I, I applied like everybody okay, else. Yeah. And, and uh, uh, the head of the Department of Political Science, whose name was Donald L.M. Blackmer, uh, phoned me and said, you know, I'd like to talk to you. So I went and talked to him and he said, would you go here if we helped you find the money? And I said, I would love to. And MIT actually had one of the top international relations department in the world at the time oh, wow. and i had a minor in defense and arms control and the mit professors included physicists and chemists who also taught uh, political science and public policy and they actually had a technical background which was amazing uh, the center for international studies at mit was well known far and wide uh, some of the original analysts for the cia were all mit uh, folks, so you know, giant names in in the business of international relations, and so I got a fellowship from the Social Science Research Council, and then a teaching job, uh, teaching assistant job at MIT, and so it all worked out, and I loved it. Awesome, and now with hindsight, and especially from a perspective of a, a university president, um, what what general advice do you? would you give to students, especially those that are, you know, moving on to grad school and, you know, demanding, especially in some of these really demanding programs and um, any, any tips or tricks or perspective that you could offer for people going through 
uh, those those programs? Uh, well, one, you know, uh, master's degrees, I think, are great short. I think if you're considering a PhD, think about it very, very carefully. Uh, first of all, mm. for academic jobs, they don't pay much. And so you should really say, I'm not doing this not for the money, but for the love of learning and research and scholarship. And then think carefully about the field that you're going into because it's for the long haul. It's very intense and lonely to do research and write a dissertation or a book. And um, there, are, there are many, um, there's opportunity costs associated with that. But going deep into something is such an adventure. And, and I loved uh, the research, some of the research that I did going to the archives in the former Soviet Union, handling some of the letters mm -hmm. and documents of the czars and nobles and, you know, reading it all in French was amazing for me. So be sure to go into a field you love. Uh, don't go into it because you think, you know, a PhD will make you more impressive. That's not necessarily the case. Yes, it may make you more impressive, but disabuse yourself of the notion now that, you know, um, so, so I think a PhD has so many uses. If you want to be a professor, it's obviously a necessity to be a tenure track professor. And if you really love the field you're in, there's just so much that's noble in doing scholarship and expanding, you know, human knowledge, whether that's in science or the humanities or social sciences. Uh, it can be incredibly exciting to devote your life to that. Um, and I think for those who are in PhD programs, I'd say, you know, start early on your dissertation. Try to write chapters as you're doing classes. Uh, if you have mm -hmm. some idea of the topic you want to write about, do those chapters for your term papers as well for classes, then you've shortcut the writing of a dissertation and Remember, I always tell people that the best dissertation is a done dissertation, not the perfect dissertation. Just done. It's really yeah. great. <laughs> yeah, that's awesome. Um, and so now, you, you know, you, you uh, get your PhD and then what uh, was there a clear path or what? how did you know what steps to take next? I was still pretty sure that I loved, uh, you know, the, the Soviet field. And so... I wanted um, a job and I actually had the job already before I finished the PhD. I was working for Harvard University and, and, then, and then subsequently for Carnegie Corporation of New York. And it was um, totally perfect because I was already working in um, the area that I, I want to be in. Um, for Harvard University, I got to run the Moscow office of the Harvard Project on strengthening democratic institutions. And, um, and then for Carnegie Corporation of New York, I was working on a project that was um, focused on uh, uh, preventing deadly conflict. And so a lot of our grantees were your top universities and think tanks uh, trying to prevent deadly conflict after the end of the Cold War, also denuclearization and non-proliferation of weapons of mass destruction and so on. Um, I'm going to take a break because I need to replenish my hot drink. Okay. Okay. Yeah, you're fine. Yeah, no just, just I'll be hold here. on. Okay. <laughs> okay. All right, I'm back. Oh, good. All right. Um, um, by the way, are we know, gonna, sure. can we end uh -huh. earlier than 4.45? I saw that they put this on my calendar until 4.45. Oh. oh, yeah, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> no, I'm looking to maybe go 20, 25 minutes more. So okay. is that all right? Okay, thank you. Yeah. <laughs> we don't need to me investigate anyway, every corner 20, of your 25 life. 25 more minutes. <laughs> 
no, I'm glad you mentioned that. I didn't want you to think we were going that long. So, um, so as you're, you know, you know, stepping into your career and, and finding these great opportunities, um, and, and especially going through several years of school and graduate school, what, what thoughts come to mind as far as just being a Latter-day Saint and, and balancing, you know, the, the rigor of academics or a new, new career paths, but also connecting spiritually and, and, you know, growing that way as well. What, what thoughts come to mind? So, so I think uh, completing and, you know, that kind of education, undergrad, graduate, and then professions at the highest levels uh, for LDS people, I have to say outright, it's a very gendered experience. By gendered mm. experience, I mean that my experience as a woman is harder as a Latter-day Saint. And, and one of the best things that happened to me was meeting my future husband at Harvard because we shared the same values and we also shared the same ambitions. And he was extremely supportive of me. Uh, at BYU, I had felt a little bit of this difficulty that, you know, I was supposed to be a little more retiring, a little less smart because I had dated men who didn't seem to like the fact that I had major ambitions in life. And I, mm. I attributed the problem to myself, not to them. And so, you know, you don't have the life experience at that point to say, I am so great in my own right. I don't say that in a, in a, in a mean, nasty, bad way, just saying that I have right. potential in my own right yeah. uh, above and beyond what my cultural culture tells me I should be. And so, uh, so one of the best things about this whole journey was meeting Jeffrey Tolk. And, you know, when we got engaged, he said to me, I just want you to know I'm not responsible for your happiness. And I, th I thought, what, why is he telling me that? He's supposed to be responsible for my happiness. He's the <laughs> man on the, the night with a white horse, you know, like I was yeah. young women. And, and I love that he was that honest. And so, so I loved it. It gave me ownership of my happiness and my, my path in life, my career. It is extremely difficult to navigate uh, family, career, church. I remember when President Benson said all women should go home. And I remember all the women at Harvard who were LDS having a faith crisis at that point in time. And I remember mm -hmm. distinctly saying to myself, I'm not going to listen to this. And that's very hard to say because all the time, you know, you are you are taught to be obedient all the time. And and I said to myself, I'm not going to listen to this. I'm not going to let this hurt my feelings. I'm not going to let this derail me from what I want to do because because I, I, I believe I can do great things. And and um, but it can be lonely. And so I think I'm having a husband who who's so supportive. Jeff went to Harvard undergrad and then to law school. And then when I worked in Russia, we actually had a commuter marriage. He lived in New York and I lived in Moscow and we saw each other every six weeks. And, oh, wow. and from an LDS cultural standpoint, uh, people whispered that, you know, hey, that marriage is not going to last. And actually that was what made the marriage last. I felt mm. like somebody took me as a whole person and my dreams were as important as their dreams. And the marriage was very equal in that sense. So um, as far as I think the faith and spiritual foundation, you know, I had, I had some very strict practices. I never studied on Sunday. I think that's a very good thing. I don't care if the paper was due Monday morning. I will get up at 2 a.m. on Monday morning and mm. write it. I think that practice served me uh, very, very well. And... Um, uh, part of my LDS experience that was great was just being around uh, Cambridge Latter-day Saints who, who were, you know, uh, thinkers and, and who were not afraid to ask questions and uh, explore and be, uh, be speculative, but still stick to the core message of a gospel of love and compassion and service and, you know, Christ-centered uh, character. And so I love being around that. There was uh, maybe less judgment, more openness, and um, yeah. So that's th that's sort of you know what what I mean. Those are yeah. some aspects, I guess, of being LDS and then navigating family, uh, career, and life that uh, that have been important. Yeah, and that, that's really helpful. And and wow, just to think about you know the, uh, doing a marriage on on different sides of the globe, you know, for a while. But at the same time, you know, with w as individuals 
are ambitious and have these wonderful opportunities that, you know, you want to say yes to and learn and grow from such diverse experiences. Um, any, any other tips you give as far as just, you know, what you did during that time to, to make sure that you were still connecting and growing together as a couple? Mm-hmm. Um, I want to give the bulk of credit to my husband. Uh, mm. So at the time, there was hardly email. You know, if you emailed, uh, it was so slow. It was just the infant <laughs> stages of email. My husband would write me these handwritten letters every day. It would take three months or so. I don't know how many months it took to get to yeah, me. Yeah. And then, so so that was amazing. And then for me, um, in order to call the United States in Moscow, you had to order your telephone call ahead of time. And the Department of wow. Post and Telco would tell you, we can give you that phone call at three in the morning or four oh, in the wow. morning. So you would wake up in the middle of the night and you know, the operator would say, okay, here's your phone call that you ordered to the United States. Um, I have to say that that much of you know the church's teachings, like the law of chastity, was so important because I knew that my husband wouldn't be cheating and he knew that I wouldn't be cheating. I think things like that are so important in that it removes mm. uh, certain types of worries from your mind. And, you know, that 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 helps that, uh, in terms of saying we have a commitment. And, I mean, marriage at the end of the day is nothing but commitment. You know, yeah. feelings uh, waver up and down, left and right, back and forth, which is naturally human. But your commitment shouldn't waver that this relationship is is important and sacred and and family is the center of, of what we do. So so I, I think you know that was one of the things that helped and and um, I, I just felt so supported. And my husband was starting his legal career in New York. And if you know anything about corporate litigation, you know, billing thousands of hours, he billed the most hours in the first year of his career of any of the young lawyers in his firm in New York City. So it was funny because when I returned, we had dinner with a managing partner of his firm and he was strongly encouraging me to stay in Moscow. And I thought that was so strange. But then I realized (laughs) that's because my husband, I don't know, billed 4,500 hours or something. Oh, wow. Anyway, yeah, yeah, so, so, but, but there is a deeper principle to this in that, you know, sometimes uh, we are socialized to, to fear. I, we said I said that mm. earlier uh, yeah. in in religion and especially as we make our way through careers and families and everything and and I think that is not necessary it, it's unfortunate but if you could somehow replace that fear with something else transform that energy into excitement about opportunity or excitement about possibility or excitement about human potential you know uh, uh, as we go forward with marriages and careers, I think that would be much better. Yeah, that's really helpful. So uh, I'm just curious, what was the church like in Moscow at that time? It it was young and and um, actually my mentor from BYU also became the first mission president to Russia. So oh, cool. it was really fun to see him there. Um, so the church was very small. I, I just remember... Uh, because I traveled quite a bit, you know, I remember just attending this the small branch and people were very kind and welcoming. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's awesome. Um, and, and religion, I, I guess, overall in post-Soviet Russia, you know, had a renaissance. Um, and so just a lot of religious activity, not just uh, the LDS church, but the Russian Orthodox Church in particular. There was just a massive kind of renaissance of practice because it was not so popular and was sort of prohibited during the Soviet period. Yeah. Wow. Interesting. Um, tell me about what uh, guided you to eventually work for, for Microsoft. And was that, it's, was that like completely different type of career path than what you were, were coming from or was it a natural transition? Yeah. If you actually uh, look at my career, so I have worked for Harvard University, Carnegie Corporation of New York, which is purely philanthropy, grant making. Mm. Uh, I've worked in uh, peace negotiations through the U.S. Institute of Peace, working in the southern Philippines with the Moro Islamic Liberation Front. Uh, I've also worked on Wall Street with AIG Global Investment. I did biotech investing, purely venture capital. And I've worked for Microsoft, and then I worked for the National University of Singapore. So I describe this career as, you know, zigzaggy and 
and I call it attention deficit of the best kind in that, you know, after a while I get bored with what I'm doing and then I, I look for opportunities that are interesting and that I may not necessarily uh, know or be familiar with, but I'm excited mm-hmm. by the prospect. And Microsoft really encapsulates uh, that, that ethos in my career where I jumped into tech uh, knowing nothing and my first six months were miserable because uh, I had already been a vice dean of research at the Lee Kuan Yew School of Public Policy, which is the premier public policy school in Asia at the National University of Singapore. And I went to Microsoft where, you know, they gave me a locker and no office and said, go. And I was supervising uh, lawyers. So the legal team, I was one of three non-lawyers supervising legal teams uh, at Microsoft in the world. The other one was in Russia and the third one was in China. And I had 15 countries. And yes, it was totally different. Um, I actually did not, did not understand half the language <laughs> at the beginning, oh, wow. and it made me so miserable. And there were no landlines. It was all, you know, Skype for business, and your office was your laptop. And uh, But um, uh, my commitment has always been that if I, if I start anything new, I'd always give it at least six months before giving up. And sure enough, after six months, I had learned a lot, and I'd established credibility, and because our portfolio included not only legal, compliance, and regulatory, but also government affairs and philanthropy, it was such a fantastic learning experience for me. And at Microsoft, probably the most uh, professionally run organization I've ever joined. Um, it was just amazing. And they're a company that went through really difficult times because they'd also lost their way. And I was there for the reinvention. You know, it, it is today, uh, I don't know, one point. $4 trillion company in oh, market wow. capitalization. Yeah. Uh, very impressive. And I saw it. I saw it start from, you know, a company that, according to Vanity Fair, had lost its mojo. Um, so it was all new to me, but everything that I apply today and what I understand about digital transformation or developing people or, you know, um, uh, appreciating diversity, a lot of that actually comes from Microsoft. And I loved it. My countries that I covered included Singapore, which is a first world country, to Indonesia, the largest Muslim majority country in the world with a, with a population of 260 million, to Nepal, which is so poor, to Myanmar, which had closed itself to the world completely and where, you know, SIM cards cost $1,000 at the time and, and before they opened up to the world. Uh, and some very, very poor countries like Laos and Cambodia and so it was just extremely fascinating. And I, f- I feel like I really got to understand um, the way that, you know, the fourth industrial revolution worked, that, that everything from the material and physical to the digital and virtual, all of this was just melding together uh, in all shapes and sizes. And it, it is what's upending higher education today. So I think that Microsoft actually prepared me so well. It wasn't Partly my academic experience prepared me, but what prepared me even better to lead, I think, was the experience in a tech company. Yeah. Yeah, I appreciate the perspective of, of just giving, you know, or forcing yourself for at least six months or so to, to stick around. Um, is there is there any other, like, uh, advice you give to someone who's making a shift into maybe a new a new industry or whatnot that, uh, that uh, would encourage them? Well, when you're thinking about a new industry, the first thing to do is look at your life story. Why would that industry be interested in you? So ask yourself, what is it about my story that I could tell in three points that will mm-hmm. make anyone interviewing me in that field, you know, be interested, be compelled to, to dig deeper into what I can contribute? That's the first thing that I would say. And then second, when you go into those interviews, uh, be totally honest about what you don't know and 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 just say, you know, this is what I don't know. Here's what I know. Ask me any question about the things that I do know. And then third, if you are lucky enough to be hired, you'll have to work really, really hard. It's, it's very humbling to acquire a new vocabulary. When I was doing biotech, I had to audit uh, courses in neuroscience 
and I had to buy textbooks in, on, on molecular biology because I remember my first meetings when, when biotech companies were pitching. And I, very, I remember so well, they used this word apoptosis. And I was just frozen. Like they kept saying the word apoptosis. What the heck is apoptosis? And that's when I learned, you know, if I'm going to have any credibility here, I've got to use their vocabulary. And apoptosis is cell death. And so, oh. um, and, and so I think you have to work really hard. You, you cannot, you can't fake it. And I think for a female of color like myself, I think I had to work double, triple hard because, you know, I'm not the type of person who could go into a room and be taken seriously. More often than not, I go into a room, people wanted me to make coffee or, or Xerox their stuff mm. for them. And, and I think I just became very aware of that even in my 20s in Moscow that I had to learn to develop an executive presence, command a room, do my homework better than anyone else. So I, I would come prepared. I would memorize everything. And when I opened my mouth, I wanted people to pay attention. So so be sure that you are taken seriously because you've done your homework. Uh, that will always impress people if you've read about them, their industry, uh, their leadership team, their ups and downs, their history. They'll know that you care and that your your interest is genuine. And, and they will want someone like you with that kind of passion and commitment to join their team. Yeah, that's, a, that's such fantastic advice and really helpful. Um, and then did, did you anticipate that you'd spend a good decade or more there and, and live a great career at Microsoft? And then what, where does the story come in of you ending up at uh, Utah Valley University? I was at Microsoft for six years from 2012 to 2018. And I never really thought of ever becoming a university president. But a friend of mine uh, named Kent Christensen was visiting my husband and me in Singapore and, and uh, casually suggested this idea of applying uh, to UVU. And I, I was actually very dismissive because I thought, I, I don't want to be a university president. And also, that's UVSC, you know, I, I just remembered that it's, it wasn't that very, it wasn't that, you know, like hefty or anything. Mm. And then... Um, I actually couldn't get the thought out of my mind. And uh, one evening in Jakarta, in my hotel room, I just looked it up and I was I was so taken in by what uh, UVSC had become. It was this large institution. It had scale. It was extremely inclusive. And I found that so inspiring. And it believed in all human potential. It was open admission. And I love this combination of technical community college type education with a full university set of offerings and, and graduate school as well. And, and so, yeah, so I sent in my application and that's how I came to UVU. It, it wasn't anything planned, but almost my entire career, I have to say, I didn't plan it. And uh, much as we like to think, you know, uh, we plan things. Uh, there's a song that says life is what happens to you when you're busy making other plans. Uh, I, I think the important thing is to be prepared for opportunity when it comes along. And if you have, you know, great curiosity, some of these opportunities somehow appear and and they come your way. And when you're ready and you're credible, um, you could have that blessing to, to do it. Thank you for listening to the Latter-day Saint MBA podcast. Check out the show notes for more information about our guest and visit latterdaysaintmba.com to find details about the Latter-day Saint MBA Society.